Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, and today is a special day. It's a, it's a week from Easter, but today is what is known as Palm Sunday. And so today we want to talk about Palm Sunday and talk about what that is, what that is, uh, and, and what, it, what it means for us as, as believers. And so Matthew 21, we'll look at verses 1 through 11, and I'll be reading from the CSB. But, but I want to say this at the outset about Palm Sunday. Maybe you've heard the term Palm Sunday before. Maybe you're not familiar with it. Uh, but Palm Sunday marked the beginning of the final events that would lead to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. It marked the beginning of the final week of, of his passion before he went to the cross. And so Palm Sunday is when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the capital city, during the time of Passover. And so Passover, if you were here during our sermon series in the book of Exodus, Passover is when the Jewish people were in Egyptian captivity, Egyptian slavery and bondage, and God sent plagues on the Egyptians. And one of God's final acts uh, with uh, with the Jews and with the Egyptians was for the Jews to to kill an animal and splatter the blood of the animal on the doorpost because God was going to free them by killing all of the firstborn uh, uh, Jews in Egypt, uh, not Jews, but all the firstborn children in Egypt. And so he told the Jewish people, hey, I want you to kill an animal and spread blood on the doorpost. And when the angel of death comes, he will pass over. And so that's what pa- pass over means. And so God did that. He did that act, that miraculous act on their behalf. And so every year they would commemorate that and they would celebrate by going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so historians will, it varies, but historians say there's somewhere between 180,000 to a million people in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. So whatever the number is, wherever it falls in that, there's a lot of people there. And, and so Jesus is aware of this. And so Jesus, on the final week, he is going to make a grand entrance into Jerusalem. He is going to make a statement. And this is where Jesus is going to have his coming out party. This is where Jesus is going to let people know, here's who I am and here's what I came to do. And so most scholars, if you look in your Bible right now, if you have a Bible, your Bible will probably say right over Matthew 21 verses 1 through 11 that it's called the triumphal entry. Triumphal entry is what it says in your Bible. It is triumphal because we know that Jesus would eventually be triumphant. What will he triumph over? He would triumph over Satan, sin, and death. And so this is the beginning of that final week of Jesus' passion. And so the people in Jerusalem know that some of the crowds are with Jesus and, and the people laid out palm branches because this is what you would do to a dignitary or a noble or a king when they would come to pay, to pay homage and, and show respect to this dignitary. And so Jesus comes in into Jerusalem and Jesus is making an emphatic statement and the statement that Jesus is making is this that I am the son of David I am the long-awaited Messiah I am the king that has come to set my people free but Jesus makes a grand interest to let people know that this is his party and this is his time and so when we get here we're going to read about Jesus's triumphal entry Jesus is clear about who he is and what he has come to do, and now he is making it obvious for all 
to see. Matthew 21 verses 1 through 11 says this. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you, and once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt, untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle, and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Then they laid their clothes on them and sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds went ahead of him, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was lit. I'm sorry. The whole city... I just want to make sure y'all paying attention. The whole city was, was in an uproar saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Let us pray. Uh, Father, we just thank you today uh, that we get to just be in a season where we get to focus on you, God, that we get to orient our minds around what you've done for us. And so today, God, I just pray that we would see you in a whole new way, that, that you would transform us and change us, God, that, that you would radically do something in our hearts and in our minds. A Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill us on today, that we would be able to just learn and grow and understand and live the life that God has called us to live. And, and ultimately, Lord, I just want us to be able to just worship you better, just understand and know you so that we would know how to worship and so, Father, I just pray for everyone in the room, God, I pray that we'll be able to tune out all distractions, all the things that are going on in our hearts and our minds, the things that we're dealing with and things that are coming up and things that, are, that have happened. And, and, Lord, I just pray for these few moments that we're together that we can focus on you and that we can grow in our relationship with you. For the person who is here, God, that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, I pray today that you will open their eyes, that they would, that they would see eternity in their sights through you, God. I, I pray today that they will experience the genuine love and forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. And for those of us who are walk, already walking with him, God, I pray that we will grow in our love for Jesus on today. We thank you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said amen. A sermon title this morning is A Grand Entry. A Grand Entry. Jesus once asked a question to his disciples. Jesus asked this very interesting question, and I think it is beneficial for all of us to ask the same question. Jesus asked his disciples this one question, who do you say that I am? Who, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, Jesus' lead disciple of sorts, Peter spoke up and answered Jesus' question. This is found in Matthew 16. Peter answered the question, and Peter, Peter's response was, you are the Messiah, the Son of of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You, you are who we have been waiting on. You are the Messiah. Jesus goes on to tell him that, man, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, that this had to come from God for you to understand this. And the reason why it had to come from God for Peter to understand this was because God revealed it to him. We can't know God outside of God's own help. But Peter answers this question 
in the right way. And so this was the belief of the disciples, some after the fact, after the resurrection, but some prior to the resurrection. But, but it's important for us to know who Jesus is like the disciples did. And here's what you need to know about the disciples. For them to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ didn't come without cost. For them to know who Jesus was and to acknowledge who he was did not come without cost. They risked their lives to admit and acknowledge that Jesus was the Son of God, that that he was the long-awaited Messiah, that he was the Christ that God had sent. It didn't come without cost. But what would make those disciples believe this and be willing to risk their lives for it? The better question is, would they really be willing to risk their lives for something that wasn't true? I'm just asking you today, if someone came up to you and put a gun in your head and said, is Jesus the Christ? If the answer is yes, then I'm killing you today. Would you answer that question? Yes. And some of us are thinking in our head, we're thinking of what it will cost us to answer that question correctly. But the disciples did this, and they didn't do it without cause. But we should ask ourselves, why would they be willing to risk their lives if it wasn't true? Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, had this to say. He was a journalist. Give you some context. He was a journalist whose wife was a Christian, but he didn't believe in Christianity, nor did he believe in Christ. But in order to prove that it didn't exist to his wife, he went on his own research as an investigative journalist and ended up being converted to a Christian. But here's what he has to say. As a journalist, I've come across a fair number of liars. In my experience, people usually lie because they figure it will get them something they want or get them out of something they definitely don't want. I might be tempted to lie to you about making a winning touchdown if I think it will get me respect. Of course, this backfires as soon as you discover that I wasn't even on the football team. You might lie about cheating on an exam if you think it will get you out of the detention or fell in the grave. But what was in it for the disciples if they were lying about Jesus? Their claims that he was God got them criticism, persecution, and ultimately death. What do you think? Would all those eyewitnesses risk their lives for a lie? And so when we think about this, this should shore up our faith. This should make us sure about who Jesus was. If people were willing to die for it, why would anybody die for something That wasn't true. But here's what I want to say to you today. It is so important and significant what we believe about Jesus. What what we believe about Jesus changes everything. It is literally a matter of life and death what we believe about Jesus. Here is what, what, what I love about God, though. Here is what I love about God. He cares so much about us. He wants us to be clear on who Jesus is. God does not want us to be in the dark. God wants us to be clear about who God is and what he has come to do. Matter of fact, it is so important. Our destiny hinges on what we believe about Jesus. Your eternal destiny hinges on what you believe about Jesus. What you believe about Jesus is not inconsequential. It means everything. Your destiny is on the line. Was he the son of God, the Christ, or was he just a madman? Which one is it? But Palm Sunday is one of the clearest proofs that Jesus really claimed to be the Christ. And so the first thing that we see about this triumphal entry into Jerusalem is that it starts off 
with intentionality. It starts off with intentionality. Jesus wants you to know who he is and what he has come to do. And the story starts off with Jesus in a place called Bethpage, which is about a mile and a half to two miles away from Jerusalem. And what do we see in the verse 2? We see that Jesus sends two of his disciples to a village. And here's what it says. And once you will get there, you'll find a donkey tied there with her coat. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them to him at once. And, and so how do we know Jesus is being in, uh, intentional? He sends his disciples to a place where he has already prearranged his transportation into Jerusalem. And so he told them, here's, here's, what, here's what I want you to know. He told them to go to the, the enterprise location in Bethpage. Go, go to the enterprise in Bethpage. But I don't want you to get a luxury rental. I don't want you to get a Benz. I don't want you to get a Beamer. I don't want you to get a Range Rover. I don't want you to get a Maserati. I don't want you to get none nice. Don't get a Lincoln. Don't get any of those things. I want you to get the worst car on the lot that you can find. This is what I want you to do. And when you get there, because I've already prearranged it, don't worry about your driving record. Don't worry about the tolls that you didn't pay for. Don't, don't worry about your criminal record. Don't worry about all them tickets that you got driving back and forth from Orlando to South Florida. Don't worry about any of that. I've already prearranged. I know I got a test. I got a witness up in here. I, I, I already know what's going to happen. I've already prearranged just when you get there. Tell them this password, the Lord needs it. Just tell them that the Lord needs it. It's a prearranged pass, a password that the disciples are to tell the owners of the cult when they get there. And here's what I want to say. I want to make a practical point at the outset of this message. We don't know who the owners of this donkey are, of this donkey is. We don't know the owners. The Bible doesn't tell us. But here's what we know. The owners were willing to relinquish what they possess in order for it to be used for the purposes of God. We don't know who owned these donkeys. We don't know what their situation was. We don't know if they needed these donkeys for their livelihood. But all we know is that God asked for it and they gave it up freely. They gave it up freely. They were willing to fully cooperate with what, cooperate with what Jesus was doing in their lives. But I have a question for you. How often do we see the things that we possess as completely and solely belonging to us? And when God says, I need it, we hold back from God. My money, it's my house, it's my car, it's my family, it's my career, it's my job, it's my kids. And so here's what the owners understand. God only gives us things to manage and steward it for his purposes and for his glory. And so when he says the Lord needs it, he says to the disciples, they will send them at once. And do you see that as soon as disciples gave the password, the owners of the donkey didn't even negotiate. They didn't go back and forth. They released it immediately. And that lets us know something. They gave God what he asked for without any hesitation. Without any hesitation, they understood something, that, that there is no need for us to hold anything tightly because anything that we possess belongs to God in the first place. It belongs to God anyway. And he says, the phrase is, the Lord needs them. The, the Lord needs them, not that the Lord actually needs it or wouldn't be able to accomplish anything if he didn't get their donkey. Let me tell you something. If God needed to pull a donkey out of thin air, God could do it. Whenever God asks us for something, it's not because God actually needs it. It's actually for our own benefit so that we can trust him. God, God is actually allowing us to participate in whatever he's doing in the world. So when God asks us for something, God is not asking you for your money like God is broke. 
God owns a cattle upon a thousand hills. God doesn't have need of anything. But when God asks us for something, what should register in our minds is this is God giving me an opportunity to come alongside him so that I can trust him and he can show me why he's trustworthy. And so we see this in the text. And then we have to ask the question, but, but okay, but a donkey though? But a donkey though? Why, why does he need a donkey anyway? But, but verses 4 and 5 tells, tells us. It says, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. And so this is a prophecy from one of the minor prophets. His name is Zechariah. You have a book in your Bible. If you look back in the Old Testament, it's called Zechariah. It's actually in your Bible too. And so what it says in verse 5 is, this is what it says in Zechariah. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy that was given 500 years prior to the time that we read the text. Zechariah's prophecy actually was in the context of God calling his people to celebrate and rejoice that there is a righteous and victorious king that is coming to set you free. You've been in bondage for a long time, but there is a king that I am sending from the line of David that is going to come and set you free. He is going to liberate you and so you need to celebrate even though you don't feel free right now. Celebrate because the king is coming. And so he puts that in this context and remember what Jesus said in Luke 24. He says everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus is only doing what he said he was going to do. He's actually fulfilling prophecy. So we see this in the context Jesus knows this. I'm going to be on the donkey because I am feeling the prophecy that was prophesied about me in advance. And so if a donkey doesn't seem to be becoming of a king to you, that's understandable. Because kings typically would ride in on a white horse. They would come in on something, something regal, some, something, some, 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 some fresh, some clean. You, you know, you've seen the presidential motorcade. Can you imagine if you, the president rode up in Orlando in a Corolla? You would be a little thrown off by that. You, you probably would feel bad for the, like, look at the, they got Joe, 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 we didn't do it, Joe. We, we didn't do it, Joe. <laughs> you, you, you would be a little concerned if the president rolled up, rolled up in, a, in, a, in a Kia Sophia. You'd be like, I don't, I don't think you should be in this. Because we've come to expect certain things from a, no, from a noble person. From a dignitary, we expect them to come in a certain type of manner. But this wasn't no ordinary king because Jesus ain't no ordinary king. He, he's not the status quo. He, he came to usher in a different kind of kingdom. He, he chooses the lowliest of animals. He chooses a, a, chooses a donkey, which is referred to as a beast of burden. It was a, the commons man transportation. It was a regular person's comp, uh, uh, a type of transportation. And so he rides in on the donkey because he is making a bold statement about who he is and what he has come to do. Jesus knew that to ride in in front of all those people on a donkey would make an emphatic statement that would leave no doubts about who he proclaimed to be. Remember, the Jewish people were so familiar with the Old Testament, and so they knew that if he came in on a donkey, he was trying to let them know that he was the Messiah. And Jesus is doing this on purpose. He is being intentional. This is not 
happenstance, Jesus has been telling people throughout his ministry, keep quiet. He does a miracle, tells them, keep quiet. He teaches them something, he tells them, keep quiet. Don't let anybody know who I am. But Jesus now says, the time is up. Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Hove. <laughs> you know I couldn't help it. I saw the taking in my soul. I was like, this is right here for me to, to drop this Jay-Z right here. And so the donkey was an animal of a man of peace. The only time a king would ride on a donkey was when there were times of peace. And what Jesus is trying to communicate by riding on this peaceful animal is that my kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Except I'm bringing a peace that is a peace between God and man. I may not be able to deal with your existential crisis, but I will be able to deal with your God crisis. I'm bringing a peaceful kingdom. And so he rides an animal of peace. And this is affirming his character and his purpose and what he came to do. He is making a statement that I'm not coming to usher in a kingdom of violence and force, but a kingdom of self-sacrificing love and service to others. Jesus' kingship is countercultural. It gives up power rather than keeping and using power. If we want to read something with me, read Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. Look at what Jesus Jesus says in Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Jesus says this, Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, hear this, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom of many. And so we see what type of kingdom he's bringing. He's not bringing a kingdom where he's going to force everybody to get in line. He's actually coming to give up his life to serve people. So this usage of, of a donkey is actually a deliberate rejection of human might of putting your trust in what you can get done by force or what you can do on your own. He did not come to use force or human power. And the most important thing about this prophecy is that it says your king is coming to you gentle. Your king is coming to you gentle. We think about what's going on in the world right now. We see a ruler, a dictator, a king of sorts coming into a different land but does it look like he's coming in gentle? It's everything but gentle. It's force. It's violence. It's brutal. But Jesus says, my kingdom is different. I'm gentle. And when we see the word gentle, you know what that means? It means he's accessible. We think about the word gentle. We, we look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am, this says, lowly and humble in heart, but your version might say, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What he's saying is, is this king ain't no ordinary king, because this king is accessible. 
He's gentle. We, we don't have to pay, pay for access or bring something to him for him to accept us. We, we don't have to be a, a celebrity or somebody important to get an audience with this king. We could never, think about this, we could never randomly show up at the White House and get a meeting with the president. Try it. Just one day, just, just on your free time, you, you feeling risky, just roll up on the White House lawn one day and just say, I'm, I'm here. Just climb the gate. Just, climb, just start climbing the gate. Just start climbing the gate and see if they say, oh, she's out there on the gate. Let her in. That'll never happen. Never happen. You would have to go through so much scrutiny and security to get an audience with the king. You would have to go through all kinds of channels. You would have to know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. You, you would have to go through all these types of things. But here it is. This king is gentle and lowly. He is the king of kings and the lords of lords. And we who have surrendered our lives to him don't have to wait in line. We don't have to know somebody. We don't have to pay for it. We don't have to do nothing special for it. We don't have to come from a good family. We don't have to have a certain type of job. We don't have to be a humanitarian. All we got to do is come trusting and believing, and we get an audience with the king whenever we want, whatever time we want. He's never too busy, and so we have a king who accepts us because he is gentle and he's lowly. He's accessible to us, and that is good news for us. Shameless plug if you miss life groups. If you didn't know, we were reading a book that was life-changing for all the people that participated called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland. And Dane Ortland says in the book, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. I, wanna, I, want you to, I want that to sit with you. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, you don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. I love that. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. He can't ungentle himself toward his own any more than you or I can change our eye color. It is who we are. And gentle is who he is. And part of him being gentle is that his kingdom is one that is received rather than one that's coercive. Meaning he doesn't force us and we can't force him. We can't work our way into his kingdom, but we can receive the salvation that he brings. This is good. And this is what Ephesians 2 tells us. Look at this. Ephesians 2 tells us. This is how we get into the kingdom. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. This is such good news for us. We don't have to work to be saved. We don't have to work to get an audience with the king. We don't have to do anything. It is a free gift of salvation. It was, if there was one scripture in the whole entirety of the New Testament to memorize, it would be this one. To always remind us when we get into that works-based ideology that I can relax. That my good works would not merit salvation. That my salvation is actually a gift from God. That even on my broke days, he still loves me. Even on my filthy and nasty days, I got an audience with the king. That's good news for us. This is the type of king that he is. A gentle and peaceful king. 
But then there are the crowds. I want to read verses 6 through 9. It says, disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. I, I love this. This is, ain't, this is not in the text. This ain't in the text. But oh, my God, I couldn't help but to notice in verse 7 when it says, they brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. In John's rendition of it, in John's account of it, it says that they lifted him up. They put him, they lifted the king up, and maybe we should lift him up too. They lifted him up. They gave him his clothes. They put their own clothes, laid it on the donkey, and then lifted the king up. I love that. I love that. In verse 8 says, a very large crowd spread, spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of them and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So... If you've heard the song before, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the high. This is what you're singing. You just be singing, you just be singing songs. You don't know what you be singing. It's like it sounds, Pastor Trey singing. I'm going to just go ahead and get with it. I don't know what Hosanna mean. I don't know what he's talking about, but I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm here. As Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, there's this, there's this discrepancy about crowds. There's the crowd who comes with Jesus. This is the Galilean crowd. They come from where Jesus has been. But then there's the, also the crowd that's already in Jerusalem. And people mistakenly believe that there's just one big crowd. There's two different crowds. Verse 10 clears that up for us because verse 10 says the other crowd is just like, like, who is this? But then there's the crowd that is screaming out, Hosanna. Let's be the name of the Lord. And the people are, are two different crowds and two different responses to Jesus. That's just like us. We are crazy and mad in love with Jesus, and some people are looking at us like, what's the big deal? But guess what? They still praise him even though the other people don't understand. And they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And the people in Jerusalem are like, what is this, what is this pandemonium? What, what is going on? This, this is crazy. And so the Galilean crowd, they're with Jesus because Jesus has been doing these miracles. And Jesus has been teaching. And so they've been following Jesus. And like, oh, yeah, he's, got, he's come. He's the Messiah. He's come to save us and set us free. He's, he's our guy. He's come to set us free. And some of the people in Jerusalem are kind of familiar with Jesus because he just did this miracle around where Jerusalem is. He raises dude named Lazarus from the dead. He raises guy named Lazarus from the grave. And so they're kind of familiar with him, but not really. But there are two crowds and two different reactions to who Jesus is. And so for them to bring the palm branches out, to bring out the palm branches was the way that you honor and recognize a dignitary or a noble. Let me make it make sense to you. Typically at an award show, they roll out the what? Red carpet. So these palm branches are their way of rolling out the red carpet. And people are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And you're like, yes, that's, yes, that's awesome. They recognize Jesus for who he is. They recognize him as the son of God and the Messiah. And here's what they, they yes, Hosanna. And here's what they're singing Hosanna for. Because they have hopes for a political Messiah that's coming to overthrow the Roman government. They're shouting Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, meaning God, save us now. God, save us now. God, save us now. Hosanna, God, save us now. 
God, God, save us now. They, they kept shouting it for a while. The whole city is shook. The whole city is going up, as the young people like to say. It's going up. They're excited, ecstatic at the prospect that, that he's about to fulfill their personal hopes of freedom from their political and existential pride. Save us now. Save me, get me out of debt. Save me, pay off these student loans. Save me, get me out of my singleness. Save me, get me out of my marriage. Save me, get me out of school. Save me, get me a new car. Save me, heal my body. Save, my, sa- save this relationship. Look, look, look. Save me, get me this job promotion. Save me, get me a new boss. This is what they're saying. And Jesus is like, I didn't come to fix that. I didn't come to save you from your existential plight. I came to save you from your sins. And so they are worshiping Jesus under the wrong pretext. And this reminds me of us. The problem is Jesus did not come to make a political statement. He came to make a spiritual statement. God save me. Get me out of this mess. And I, I I like to call it a messianic misconception. They're worshiping Jesus based off something he never said he was doing. And here comes the rub in our day and time. That people worship a rendition of Jesus that he never said he was. And when he is not that rendition that you conjured up in your head, you have misplaced expectations. And you place things on God that he never said he was going to do. And so when God doesn't come and bring the healing that you've been praying for, you get disappointed at God. When you get stuck in that job longer than you want to stay and God ain't moving yet, you get upset with God. And this is something wrong in our theology. This is something wrong in our theology and this is something wrong with modern preaching is that we think that God has come to save us from our existential plight. But God came to save us from our sins. And the problem with us is this. We think we need Jesus to save us out of our situation more than we think we need him to save us from our sins. We want God to fix our hand, but we don't want him to fix our heart. And so when it doesn't happen... We get disappointed. But Jesus came to save us from our sins. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus even said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus lets us know about what he has come to do. So is it his fault when we've conjured up a God in our head that doesn't exist? Jesus came to die a substitutionary death for our sin on the cross. And it is through his death and resurrection that we have been forgiven and received eternal life. In him we have forgiveness. If we would repent and put our trust in him, Jesus came to save us from our sin. And so the problem is, is we have a very low view of our sin. But if you think that him getting you out of your financial bind is more important than him setting you free from your sin... You're sadly mistaken. And this is why we can't really praise God the way we should praise God. This is why we cannot, this is why we have a half-hearted worship of God. Because he hadn't come through on the thing that we think he's supposed to come through on. 
But if you knew that the worst thing that could ever happen to you was you were born in sin and shaped in iniquity, you would have a greater appreciation for what God has done in your life. You would, you would, you would then realize that the good news is actually good news. But we treat it like it's sort of kind of good news. I watch a certain, we watch a certain news, news channel. I'm not going to tell you what it is because then you'll assume political stuff about me. But it's one that I definitely don't watch. It, I don't ascribe to any of them, but it's one I, de- I, don't even bother, I, I don't bother with that one. But they always put breaking news. And I'm like, everything ain't breaking news. So I just disregard the breaking news. I never know what's important because break, everything's breaking news. There's a wildfire. Nobody died. Breaking news. But they use it haphazardly. And so, it's, and, and so what I'm trying to say is we treat the good news just like that. Like it doesn't mean anything. Because we've taken the significance out of it because we have a low view of our sin and the damage that it does to us. But if we knew that the good news was actually good news, we would celebrate like it was good news. We would celebrate like it is. And here's what happens in verses 10 through 11. It says, we entered Jerusalem. The whole city was turned. Saying, who is this? The cross was saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And so they call him a prophet. And that's, that's good. It's a high honor to call someone a prophet. It's a high honor. But Muslims also call Jesus a prophet. He's more than a prophet. He's more than just a good teacher. He's God. He's God in the flesh. He is the Messiah. Jesus says to us that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus makes these claims about himself, he's not making them just to make them. We have to respond to it. And newsflash is this. You don't have a neutral or indifferent relationship with God no matter how much you try to ignore him. You can have an indifferent relationship with a person, but you can't have one with God. There's no such thing. Either you are his son or daughter or you're his enemy. Scripture talks about the wrath of God, and sin brings on the wrath of God. And prior to Jesus, all of us had the wrath of God breathing down on our necks. But when Jesus comes to die for our sins, he changes everything. The Bible tells us clearly that the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. The Bible is clear that we've all sinned, Fallen short of the glory of God. That's a problem. Then Paul goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus comes to bring this good news to us. So when Jesus makes these claims that he is the Messiah that has come to save us for our sins, we can't just be neutral. We have to do something about what he says he is. It matters. And so this triumphal entry matters because when Jesus came, he came to bring a new kingdom. 
And so when people were like indifferent towards Jesus, when they were indifferent, it wasn't that they were indifferent and didn't mean anything. You were were picking sides. Either you were in his kingdom or you were in the kingdom of Satan. And so when we think about this, it matters what our posture is towards God. I want to read you something that C.S. Lewis wrote, and then I'm done. He says this, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So here's what I want to leave you with. We must make a decision about who Jesus is, or at least who we believe he is. Because who you believe Jesus is matters to your eternal destination. If you do believe that he is the son of God that has come to seek and save that which is lost, then that means that you have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but it also means that he be- you belong to him, that your life is no longer your own, that you've been bought with the price, the precious blood of Jesus. And so for us, it, 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 I, I, it's either a passionate pursuit or nothing. And so we think about this triumphal entry. Let us cry out, Hosanna. Let us call out to his name. But let it be from a pure understanding of who he actually is. That before Jesus came to fix our existential situations, he came to save us from our sins. And if we could all admit that we are sinners in need of God's grace, Jesus has come to remedy that. So this week means everything to us. When he made his triumphal entry... Didn't just mean something for those who were there in Jerusalem during that time. It meant something to all of us throughout all of history. You talk about a grand entrance. This is the grand entrance of all grand entrances. Y'all know how in Orlando people like to show up late for their party? People be an hour late for stuff because they want you to look at them when they come in. And Jesus is saying, look at me. I am the only one that can save you. I am the long-awaited Messiah. Except I didn't come to overthrow the government. I came to overthrow Satan. I came to set you free from your sins. I came to give you forgiveness and eternal life. And so this is the offer for us today. Will we trust in him or will we trust in our own works? The good news is this. If you trust in Jesus, if you turn to him and repent and trust in his finished work on the cross, then you too will be saved. For those of us already saved, this is just a reason for us to shout and praise God for what he's already done for us. That we can shout that we are forgiven, that we've been set free, that even if we don't feel free, we are free. Because who the Son sets free is free indeed. Let us pray.
We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.